1: Hello and welcome to the BFI podcast. I'm Henry. And I'm Anna. Anna, I've got a strange question for you as always. Who would play you in a docudrama of your life?
2: Do you know what? I thought about this a lot. And I think it would be Shannon Sussman, who is not a very great, but very interesting looking actress who peaked in the early 90s.
1: She was in that Brett Easton Ellis film. The Rules of Attraction. Rules of Attraction. She skateboarded around a lot.
2: Exactly. She was also in a great, great and forgotten TV series called Moonlighting, which was about a vampire detective.
1: Vampire detective. This would get really (laughs) awkward. I had a massive crush on her in that film. So I don't know what that says about your choice. Let's move on. I would get somebody like... It's tough, isn't it? Because you think if I say someone like Adam Driver, then that's just me kind of like bigging up myself. So I would go for someone who's noticeably uglier than I am. So I'm going to say Danny McBride. (laughs) And then when we do the red carpet together, I'm going to look good in comparison to him. I asked because this episode, inspired by the upcoming release of Bark Layton's American Animals, we're going to be talking about a brief moment in the early 2010s when documentary and fiction collided, throwing off a series of brilliant films that blurred the lines between the two.
2: And Bart is precisely one of the filmmakers that connects that moment with today. His second feature film, American Animals, follows four bored young men in Kentucky as they attempt to steal some of the rarest and most valuable books from the University Library. You ever feel like you're waiting for something to happen? That thing that could
0: make your life special? Yeah. Like what? Exactly. Through these doors, John James Audubon. This book is the most valuable in existence. $12 million in rare books and only one old lady guarding it. What? I think you know what.
2: My heart beats patterns through the broken side.
0: This is your red pill or blue pill moment, my friend. You're either in or you're out. How can I tell you if I'm
1: in or I'm out without you telling me the first thing about what I might be in or out of?
2: We hosted Bart a couple of weeks ago at the BFI Southbank for a preview of the film. He was a fascinating guy to talk to, so we'll be hearing excerpts from that chat throughout the episode. And let's hear something from him now.
3: It wasn't an easy process, because, you know, to get your film financed, you have to write a screenplay. And, of course, the screenplay I was writing was based on all of the things that they would put in their letters from from prison and i imagined that if they'd said it on paper they would say a version of it when we finally came to Mm -hmm. shoot these interviews and and of course so i wrote the script with what i expected them to say and of course on the day they didn't say any of that i mean they they some of them clammed up some of them it suddenly became they suddenly were aware that oh we're bringing this whole story back up and Mm -hmm. it was devastating for their parents. It was cataclysmic within the community and they they sort of went to bits a little bit. And so I kind of had to abandon, you know, and, and the last thing you want to do with, documentary contributor is try and turn them into an actor mm-hmm. or a performer and give them lines and there was a point where I was thinking oh god I've, I've sold this movie and I'm, I'm kind of you know because the production was sort of moving I was going to shoot the non-fiction stuff then I was going to go back and prep and shoot the fiction stuff and I came out of those interviews and I kind of called the producer and I was like you know I need to go and rewrite around not what I thought they were going to say but what they've actually said and mm-hmm. some of it was better and deeper and more poignant and some of it was just different and so so there wasn't a template for any of it and uh and it was ambitious even you know i got the sense that there were you know probably rumblings amongst the people involved that you know maybe if he fucks all that up then at least we'll still have the fiction version and we can take all the doc stuff out But I was very much like Warren, you know, you're either in or you're out. This is how it's going to be and hopefully it'll work, you know.
2: Bart's first movie was the documentary film The Imposter from 2012, which tells the gripping story of French trickster Frédéric Bourdon, who claimed to be the missing teenage son of a Texan couple. That brings us back to that brief window in the early 2010s. A moment, not quite a movement, where documentary and fiction collided. So Henry, you have been fascinated by this moment. What about it seems so interesting to you?
1: It's a really amazing period for film, and yeah, I'm going to go so far as to call it a mini golden age, 2010 to 2012. Some of the films that came out in that period, we've got The Arbor, Exit Through the Gift Shop, Bombay Beach, I'm Still Here, This Is Not a Film, Dreams of a Life, all of these films, to some degree, mixed fiction and fact, and started to blur the lines between what was real and what was fantasy and turns a kind of a subjective experience into the truth of what we're supposed to be seeing and use that to talk about the real world. But the three films that we're going to concentrate mainly on today are The Imposter by Bart Layton. we're going to talk about The Act of Killing by Joshua Oppenheimer, and then Catfish by Nev Schumann. And they are just weird strange films that tell you a truth tell you that truth is a lie and then tell you another truth on top of that and then ask you to make up your own mind and at the time people got in a real tizzy about the ethics behind these films in that they found it difficult to see how films that were dealing with often very difficult subject matter like in the case of the act of killing the uh, indonesian genocide of the 1960s could show something that was anything but the true objective truth about what happened. Um, which of those films do we, should we start with, Anna?
2: I mean, I'm almost tempted to start up with The Imposter just because it's such an interesting trajectory that Bart's doing from that film into American Animals, which also plays around with notions of truth and fiction. And is it a documentary? or Is it a purely narrative film as well? Um, and The Imposter itself is an interesting dialogue with someone who is a really charismatic con man. So uh, even as an audience member as you're watching it, he is getting you under his spell. But at the same time, you're watching this reenactment and talking to the victims of his crimes and his cons.
1: Can you explain the setup of the imposter for us?
2: So the imposter is a direct conversation with the French conman, Frédéric Bourdain, who has claimed to have impersonated over 500 people. Some of them are missing teenagers and children. And it specifically focuses on a one particular case when he pretended to be the missing teenage son of an American couple that had been missing for years, and he was found in Spain in the early 2000s. Uh, we found
0: a kid here He's about 14, 15
2: years old. The thought of what somebody could have done to him, it gives you nightmares. Layton kind of plays around in that film and in American animals as well with the notion of telling this really stranger than fiction, almost fantastical story that really did happen. But speaking with these people who are incredibly charismatic tricksters, he, they speak directly to camera and they're almost bewitching you. From as long as I remember, I wanted to be someone else.
0: We had no idea what kind of person we were getting. He had changed so much. There was just something wrong about it.
2: It's interesting that there is a breakout character, in a way, in American Animals, which is a film that is based on a real story, but also really interestingly mixes and plays around with genre conventions. So it is essentially a heist movie about four bored university students. For guys who have everything going for them and who decide to commit a heist because they expect or they think that that will make their lives extraordinary because they deserve to be extraordinary because why shouldn't they be extraordinary?
0: It pains me to see you embarrass your father. But you don't know what it is.
2: You're in or you're out.
0: That thing that could make your life special... This would be something dangerous and very exciting. You really need to see how easy this is gonna be.
2: Oh, you know this from all your previous ice. It plays around with th- fiction because obviously all the characters are played by actors such as Evan Peters and Barry Keegan. But then also we have interviews with the real life guys. And one of them in particular, Warren, is an incredibly charismatic fantasist. And when he speaks directly to camera, it's a really similar relationship with the audience as when Frederick himself speaks to camera in The Imposter, where he's almost seducing you into believing his con. And that makes you kind of step back a little bit and re rethink what you're aiming to get from this film or how you're even approaching it, which is part of the interesting thing about this movement, isn't it? It's how the lines are blurred yeah. and how they seduce us into thinking that it's okay to go along with the fictional elements of it. But if you pause about it or if you think for a minute about the actual... I hesitate to use the word ethics because I think there is something whenever you put a camera in the room, the mood changes. And every documentary filmmaker and every documentary, ostensibly, you could argue that changes the reality of the situation by placing a camera in the room.
1: Yeah, that's true. And I I like the idea that you suggested there that the most charming people own the narrative, as we know all too well. But yeah, I mean, Bart Layton does that really well. As you said, Frederick and who's the guy in American Animals? Warren. 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 They both look straight into camera and then everybody else in the film that's interviewed, people around the subject, are looking to the side and talking to um, somebody who's off camera. So you immediately get that extremely intimate feeling that you're talking to someone who's telling you the truth just by dint of staring straight at you, which is a lie unto itself, right? Because they're always going to have their own point of view about what happened and they're both serial liars to some extent. How do you feel about Bart making almost like filmic superheroes out of these people because they love the, the attention, right? Like, and he has read that and they're great characters because they want to hog the limelight. And so as a filmmaker, it must be in his interest to give them the most screen time because they're the most interesting people. But at the same time, it's giving the most time to the lie.
2: I think there's always a truth underneath a lie. There's always truth in great films and in American Animals. I think he taps into this very male malaise of, you know, feeling discontented and feeling like they're supposed to be special and not really understanding or the difficulty of coming to grips with that maybe the fact that their lives are not meant to be extraordinary, that they're just going to live ordinary, not particularly exciting lives, and maybe they're not great successes, and maybe they're not great geniuses.
0: Aren't you even curious? Well, yeah,
2: a prison would be a nice change of scenery.
0: The librarian is the single biggest risk to this entire operation.
2: (sighs) I don't want you waking
3: up 10 years from now wondering what could have happened.
0: Go. Come on. You guys are sending us to jail, you idiots.
2: I think American Animals is underneath kind of the flashy heist aspect of the film which is filmed in a very very stylized way and it throws back to a lot of great and kind of classical heist movies which are also interestingly directly quoted in the film itself because the guys actually rented a whole bunch of heist movies and watched them in order to prepare for their um for their crime It was something that he actually mentioned in the Q&A that we did is that this is the other side of the conversation that's going on right now. It's what is going on with the men, with the guys. How are they feeling? And obviously this is a slightly period film in that it's set in the early noughties. But I wouldn't say that it's giving the limelight to the liars, I think their lies illuminate something a lot more interesting that maybe they themselves are not even articulating.
3: I think that was the thing they were in love with, right? The fantasy. And Warren is this consumer kind of fantasy. You know, I mean, you know, he's studying filmmaking. He he wants to live in a, a kind of movie reality and take everyone with him. And I think, you know, Eric said to me in one of the letters from prison, he said, you know, this was like our version of Fight Club, this secret that we had. He was like, it was this thing that we were doing and no one else knew about it, and it made us different and better than everyone else. And And I think what happened was they, they fell in love with the bond that that created and the project, and none of them really wanted to give it up. But also, I think, with the possible exception of Warren, none of them actually really thought they were ever going to go through with it. Mm-hmm. Definitely not Spencer or Eric or probably, you know, I think they just thought they'd go right up to the precipice and kind of look over and go, okay, we've got here and, and now's enough. And, and they just crossed the line that shouldn't be crossed. And that for me was what the movie was about. You
2: Going back a little bit in time, I'm curious about why that particular brief moment all the films that we're talking about are kind of released between 2010 and 2012 do you think there was a particular something going on in culture or in moving image culture or in television that um, generated that yeah
1: I mean culture was heading into the ditch Uh, (laughs) the 10 years before these films came out was when reality TV started to boom so you had things like The Bachelor American Idol Big Brother was slightly earlier but was kind of coming into popularity then X Factor Never be a rock star.
0: You've absolutely no talent. The dream has to end here. Welcome to Big
2: Brother 2005. Hello and welcome to Pop
0: Idol, the show that's on a mission to find the nation's next musical megastar. You don't want to do any promotion for it at all. Karen, I will say very slowly, it is not my band and I, I don't want to do any promotion. Let this, let them whose band it is do the f- promotion. Do you want to do it? Yes. Crazy.
1: And then most tenantly things like the Osbournes, which were supposed to show the real life mm-hmm. of the Osbournes, but actually showed a very idealised view. And of course, things like Keeping Up With The Kardashians came out of that. So that kind of weirdly spins back to what you were talking about, about people always thinking that they should be more or they deserve more than they actually are. And that we all entered that period when reality TV suggested that we could all be superstars and that our stories were all inherently fascinating to everybody else. And which obviously spins off into how we use the Internet now.
2: And it's interesting as well that actually one of those documentaries, Catfish, then itself became a reality TV show with... Very questionable morals. Yeah,
1: so Catfish is a film about a group of friends, and the center of them is this guy called Nev, who meets a woman online who he thinks is called Megan. Hey, Megan. Hi, how are you? Who's gorgeous.
0: Your voice is not at all what I expected. Attainable. I mean, she must be pretty awesome at least from Facebook. And
1: chatty and wants to get to know him and he's not used to this kind of attention. How
0: long have you been calling each other babe? Two weeks,
1: maybe. After having a long kind of online relationship with her, decides to try and find her.
0: So you're full on going out? I guess I don't know that much about her.
1: Turns out that Megan is another woman who lives in uh, the Midwest and she's... uh, been making essentially a fantasy around herself. So she lives a very depressing life. She's got two disabled stepsons to look after. And to escape that, she's created this fantasy world where she is this younger, more conventionally attractive woman who's an artist and a dancer and a guitar player. I don't really want her
0: getting hurt. I'm not getting hurt. So what's the next move? I think we drive up to Megan's farm in Michigan.
1: And Nev then explores how he was duped and how his story is inherently a lie and what we're seeing in Catfish is a lie all the time as, as well. That film is fascinating on so many levels. I mean, first of all, you have this poor woman who wanted to create a life that was more interesting than her own by creating a fantasy world. But Nev is also creating a fantasy world for, for himself by making the film in that he's projecting himself as a investigative successful filmmaker who's going to go out and find a world that's he more interesting. He is actually
2: the subject matter of the documentary. Pretty much, yeah. And then he became the host or well, the co-host um of Catfish the TV show, which is about four or five seasons in now, I believe. And the whole premise of that show is that he goes and helps other people who are being catfished online to discover who the real people that are catfishing them really are.
1: My brother and his filmmaking crew got it all on camera and it turned out to be a pretty big hit. Now I'm on the road with my buddy Max and MTV has given us a lot of money to exploit people's online relationships. This is Catfish.
2: So it's effectively recreating that same documentary and that same experience that happened to him um, in every single episode of this reality TV show. One of the things that's really fascinating to me, and I think that sort of binds all of these films that we're talking about together, is how they relate to very conventional and familiar movie tropes and fantasies as well. So Catfish, especially in the way that it was marketed and presented to audiences, was that it was a thriller. You know, there was a twist. Even the trailer was it showed us nothing. You knew, barely anything about the premise, but you had to see it. And the imposter in a way is also kind of structured like a crime thriller. So do you think that's one of the edges that begins being blurred when they reenact or really use narrative tropes in nonfiction?
1: Absolutely, but it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because that's why these films increasingly became more and more popular is because once you sell something with those familiar tropes, people find the idea of documentary less frightening, I think, in the same way that Michael Moore did, actually, in a weird way. like He became the popular face of what he was doing and he sold it through comedy so he could get away with talking about gun legislation, for example, by being the dint of being a comedian at the front of it and showing his real-life struggle of walking in and out of these offices and getting shouted at by security guards. I think with things like Catfish... And the imposter, where I can kind of side with the people that have a slight problem with them is is sometimes it feels like the treatment of the subjects, particularly the subjects that are poorer and presumably less educated, feels a teeny tiny bit exploitative in that they are using those tropes as a kind of hammer to swing against these people.
0: This is it, this is it. Just pull up. You wanna drive into the driveway? Yeah. Are you crazy? What do you mean? Drive into the driveway. What do you mean, do back into it. Why? Why not? Because then we can't see what's
1: in front of
2: us. I'm a little scared,
1: because we creeps. Let's go. So in the catfish trailer, for example, there's loads of shots when they go to the woman in the Midwest house, where it looks like it's going to be a kind of, they use um, the tropes of like a rural horror. And like, she's poor, she's living in the countryside, so she must be by dinner that
2: yeah it's like the real folk of real horror convention of you know the crazy cannibals yeah. that live on the on the outskirts of civilization
0: you've just found like the tip of the iceberg you got no camera down
1: yeah and actually Nev, she is the woman who's giving you a story and making your career as a filmmaker and then a franchise TV star you know it's I do feel it's a little bit ingracious to do that to these people. I think The Imposter does that less and American Animals even less because he is essentially giving the subjects what they wanted, which was a little bit of excitement in their lives. Where I find it really interesting is a film like The Act of Killing by Joshua Oppenheimer because there was a lot of kickback against that film, which I think is almost flawless as a documentary. So that film is about the Indonesian genocide of the 1960s when leftists in Indonesia were murdered in their thousands by the Swatik government. What Joshua Oppenheimer does with that film is he talks to the killers and gets them to reenact their crimes on camera. So one person in particular called Anwar Congo, was responsible for the deaths of over a 1,000 people by his own hands. And he's a massive movie fan. So Joshua gets him to dress up And to reenact these grisly murders over and over again in a way that feels like an Indonesian soap opera or a musical or a gangster thriller. And there is something very strange about that process because what you're doing is essentially making a star out of Anwar Congo at the same time as paying respect to the victims by truly telling their story and letting these people hang themselves and giving them enough rope. I watch the act of killing every year or so because I love it so much and I still find it really difficult and to come down on either side of that film I can see why people have a real problem with it and that it feels exploitative and gives the victims literally no voice it doesn't not show their experience it shows what the prevailing attitude in Indonesia was at the time It shows how the ruling parties had assumed power to the point where they felt like everyone else's life was worthless. And it shows that you can make a documentary that is entertaining and grisly and funny at the same time and still make a point and change something in the country that you're filming in.
2: Oppenheimer would come back to that story, but from a different angle, giving screen time and much more voice to the victims of that genocide with his follow up, The Look of Silence. But it's interesting hearing you speak about that, because one of the the dynamics that I find fascinating is the relationship between the filmmaker and the subject, particularly when they're enabling these reenactments. Bart in the Q&A had some really interesting things to say about the process that he used to work with both the actors and the real life subjects of American Animals. So we're going to hear him talk a little bit about that.
3: You know, they're all great actors. And of course, if you're playing a real person, you're, mm-hmm. you're going to want to spend time with them because, you know, and there's no better way of getting to, to I guess, the nuts and bolts of who they are, but... I felt quite strongly that I didn't want that. I didn't want them to, because partly the real guys are now 12 years older Mm -hmm. than when it happened. Most of, you know, majority of that time they were in prison. They're very different people from who they were. And I also felt like I had distilled as much as I understood of who they were and what they were into the screenplay. And I really wanted that to be the kind of, the template for the actors. And I wanted the actors liberated to find their own version of these characters. I didn't want them. Because, you know, there's also a danger that, you know, as you've seen, real Warren is very magnetic and charismatic. And if Evan sat down with him and Warren started saying to him, look, I didn't, you know, don't make me out to be violent or too much of a dick or whatever, it well, you, know, you know, Evan would start to feel a kind of responsibility mm-hmm. towards that um person and I I just didn't think that was going to be uh helpful but of course Evan who was channeling Warren completely disobeyed me and um and reached out to Warren on Twitter and they began this kind of <laughs> secret <laughs> correspondence which I had to kind of put an end to but I think all the in the end they were all very relieved that I'd mm-hmm. I'd kind of allowed them to be completely uh as I say sort of liberated from from having to feel like that. And I didn't want any imitations and I didn't want them to be look alike. So I just thought, you know, this is, it's up to you to find your version of this character and pour yourself into that. You know, in my mind, it wasn't like real and active, it was like older version and younger version.
2: So American Animals Aside. I wonder if this is something that is also coming back and maybe in different formats. I'm thinking particularly of long-form documentary series such as Making of a Murderer or The Jinx, but also about a true crime podcast like S-Town.
3: Something's happened. Something has absolutely happened in this town. There's just too much little crap for something not to have happened. And I'm about had enough of shit town and the things that goes on
1: yeah definitely i think that i mean the times we're in as well right like if you're talking about trump's america the idea of reality and fiction and where those lines have been essentially decimated in the news media. We've kind of entered a phase where reality TV has played itself out to the fullest extent, where you get a star of The Apprentice being the most powerful man in political uh, life today.
2: Do you think that the audience success of these new projects actually becomes an ethical question, where because the audience demands it and is thirsty kind of for this type of content it becomes a question of kind of finding the juicier stories, but maybe blurring the ethical boundaries a bit more.
1: It's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think that when it comes to a good story, sometimes ethics is just thrown out the window, or it can be by degrees. And I think that's really interesting. Like how do you separate something like the jinx, which I think is fantastic storytelling, from (sighs) Trump-style doctrine of this is the truth. There is no other truth. Like, I don't think the jinx takes it to that extent, mm-hmm. but they definitely lead you down a path to a truth that can be challenged at many, many different points. And so it's up to the viewer to be kind of savvy enough, intelligent enough to question the documentary at every turn. The best of these documentaries ask you to do that in themselves. So the imposter American animals, even the act of killing to some extent, say to you, this is a lie and you need to work out which bits of this are lie exactly. He
2: is being unfairly accused. Bob Durst may be the unluckiest man in the world.
0: Lonely... Well, I thought he was darling. He's not crazy, he's diabolical. I believed him from the very beginning. I wish that I... You should interview him, I think you'd have a lot of fun with that. Is he crazy enough to participate?
2: I I think the jinx is such an interesting example in this context because that's, I think, maybe the only one that doesn't ask Mm you to question it because it's presented as a straight-up documentary, a straight-up fact. But actually, particularly as it was airing, There was a lot of questioning by the audience of the order of the events versus how they were presented by some very suspicious timings of things, like how Robert Durst, the subject of the documentary and kind of an alleged serial killer, was captured and arrested just around the time that the last episode was airing. So that was one that tried to... I'm not going to accuse it of trying to dupe its audience, but at least was presenting itself as straight-up fact when actually there was a lot more doctoring going on behind the scenes.
1: Totally. It's much more interesting for a filmmaker or or a TV maker, whatever, to come out and say, you decide how much of this you're going to believe, rather than telling the audience, this is the gospel truth and my story is more extraordinary because of it. And I think Bart Layton's skill, if anything, is knowing how much to feed the audience and how much to hold back and let them make up their own minds. I think the ethics question now is really interesting with things like S-Town, the podcast, that the trouble that S-Town got into through sort of telling you all the story and then kind of not. That was the same thing that made people keep listening. So you don't know where to stop sometimes because you're following the story so far and it's and it's a fascinating story for an audience, but it, ethically it starts to head into dodgy territory.
2: You've mentioned Trump and kind of our current political situation right now, but especially what that means for blurring the boundaries between fiction and truth or, you know, journalism, be that in really elaborate podcasts or documentaries or fictionalized versions of true stories. Bard had something really intriguing to say on that subject matter, precisely because his background for the majority of his career has been as a documentary maker.
3: The thing that took it from a fun story and a good yarn to actually, you know, maybe this is really a story of our time you know and something that felt more relevant and it was their voices and their reasons behind such as spencer talking about dreaming of becoming an artist and feeling that the one thing that all great artists had that he didn't was suffering and tragedy and drama and all of this and you know the idea of a central protagonist whose main problem is that he doesn't have a problem felt like a very modern idea and a, and also a great starting point you know and, and also kind of reflective of not just that generation but kind of where we're going culturally as well a little bit you know this need to be a somebody
2: i mean it seems kind of almost radical to be making a film about very privileged white
0: guys
3: yeah it's not really today. the moment as it turns
2: or out it is, yeah. or it's exactly the i would argue
3: that it is but and it's really? such a funny time you know particularly in the states i think people don't realize that it's part of the same conversation
2: absolutely
1: And that's it for this episode. Tell us the honest to goodness truth about what you think of the podcast by rating, reviewing and subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts and contacting us on Twitter. I'm at Henry H. Barnes and Anna is...
2: Anna B. Dementin.
1: We're hosted by Acast. Pete Sale is the man who tidies up our messy reality, aka our producer. More of his work at petersale.co.uk. Finally, American Animals is out in the UK now. Go see it. You won't believe it. Maybe that's the point. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Your last line this episode comes from... Fleetwood Mac if I could turn the page in time then I'd rearrange just a day or two do you get it Anna?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time